big or small, left or right, it's still evil. Each and every person who advocates government in any form, whether liberal, conservative, moderate, independent, communist, fascist, constitutionalist, or any other flavor, believes that representatives of authority should, on a large scale, commit acts which, if done by anyone else, would be widely recognized as unjust and immoral. All statists believe that people who make up government have an exemption from basic human morality, and not only may do things which others have no right to do, but should and must do such things, for the supposed good of society. The type and degree of aggression varies, but all statists advocate aggression. In statist mythology, the political left wing and the political right wing are opposites. In reality, they are two sides of the same coin. The difference lies only in what the different voters hope those in power will do with that power. But in practice, left and right politicians all engage in wealth redistribution, warmongering, centralized control of commerce, and numerous coercive restrictions upon the behavior of their subjects. As right-wing and left-wing states approach complete power, they become utterly indistinguishable from each other. Hitler's supposedly far-right regime and Stalin's supposedly far-left regime were virtually identical. Whatever the original stated purpose of either, the end result was complete power and control for the politicians, and complete helplessness and enslavement of everyone else. Being allowed to choose between a political left and the political right provides people with exactly as much power and freedom as allowing them to choose between death by hanging and death by firing squad. And adding an independent third party only adds the option of death by electrocution. As long as the people bicker about which gang should enslave everyone, also known as democracy, the people will remain enslaved. Ironically, statists of all political stripes lament the influence that lobbyists and special interests have over politicians, ignoring the fact that every voter is a special interest and every campaign contributor is a lobbyist. Once people accept the premise that government has the right to forcibly micromanage society, perpetual competition between groups, each throwing money and favors at politicians to try to get their way, is inevitable. It's silly to advocate authoritarian control, government, only to then complain about the unavoidable effect of authoritarian control, people trying to buy influence. Politicians can be bought only because they have the power to sell, and they have the power to sell only because people believe in government. State power will always be used to serve one person's agenda at the expense of another. How else could coercion be used? making the idea of government corruption redundant. Every statist wants government to forcibly impose his will on others, but dubs it corruption if someone else's agenda wins out. The hypocrisy is astounding. Likewise, conservative pundits on talk radio and elsewhere sanctimoniously chastise liberals for advocating the forced redistribution of wealth, while the pundits do exactly the same thing for slightly different purposes to criticize welfare while supporting corporate subsidies, or to criticize attempts to legislate fairness while supporting the war on drugs, or to criticize liberal plans to nationalize industry while supporting a giant, forcibly funded government military, which amounts to nationalizing the protection industry, shows a complete absence of philosophical principles. At the same time, it's equally hypocritical for liberals to righteously condemn right-wing warmongering while supporting a giant, intrusive, vicious extortion racket, taxation, or to complain about the intolerance of the right, while advocating all manner of authoritarian behavioral controls. In truth, there is no real difference between the philosophical principles of one statist and another, because they both accept the premise that a ruling class, with the right to control and rob the population, is necessary and legitimate. The only argument after that is not one of principle, but simply a debate over how the loot should be distributed and what choices should be forced upon the peasants. There is no such thing as a tolerant liberal or a tolerant conservative 
because not one of them tolerates people spending their own money and controlling their own lives. It is true that the degree of evil and the types of immoral aggression advocated vary based upon the different styles of statism. Constitutionalists, for example, advocate relatively low levels of robbery and extortion, taxation, and advocate that only certain limited activities and behaviors should be controlled via threats and coercion, regulation. But every power which any constitution pretends to grant to any legislator is a power not possessed by mere mortal individuals. Who would bother writing into a constitution a line pretending to delegate to certain people a right already possessed by everyone else? All such grants of power and any document purporting to create a government or empower any legislature to do anything are attempts to issue a license to commit evil. However, as should be patently self-evident, no person or group of people, regardless of what documents they create or rituals they perform, can grant to someone else moral permission to commit evil. And putting supposed limits on such permissions does not make it any more sane or legitimate. In short, to advocate government is always to advocate evil. Liberals and conservatives both insist that someone needs to be in charge, because that is the reality that they were raised in. The only thing required of them was that they remain obedient to authority. From that training, they still have little or no idea what to do if left to their own devices, if no one else is telling them what to do, so they refuse to grow up, and they try to hallucinate an existence of a superhuman authority. Paradoxically, even though there is no earthly species above human beings, they seek to fabricate this superhuman entity out of nothing but human beings, and then try to bestow upon it superhuman qualities, rights, and virtues. The entire concept is delusional, but is shared by the vast majority of people the world over, who refuse to accept the fact that there is no shortcut to determining right and wrong. There is no magic trick which will make truth and justice automatically prevail. There is no system that can guarantee safety or fairness, and that every day mortal human beings, with all their deficiencies and shortcomings, are the best and only hope for civilization. There is no tooth fairy or Santa Claus or magical entity called government which can make an immoral species behave morally or make a group of imperfect people function perfectly. And the belief in such an entity, rather than being merely pointless and ineffective, drastically increases the overall conflict, injustice, intolerance, violence, oppression, and murder in human society. Nonetheless, most of those indoctrinated into the worship of government would rather cling to their familiar, horribly destructive, heinously evil, profoundly anti-human superstitions than grow up and accept the fact that there is no one above them, that there is no giant mommy or daddy to save the day, that they are at the top, and that each of them is personally responsible for deciding what he should do and then doing it. Sadly, they would rather suffer the hell of perpetual war and total enslavement than face the uncertainty and responsibility that comes with freedom. The belief in authority negates and overrides nearly all of the positive effects of religious and moral beliefs. What most people call their religion is empty window dressing, and what most people tout as their moral virtue is irrelevant, as long as they believe in the myth of authority. Christians, for example, are taught things such as, if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek, love your neighbor, and even love your enemy, and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yet every so-called Christian who believes in government constantly forsakes these principles, advocating constant aggression against everyone, friend and enemy, neighbor and stranger, via the cult of government. To put on a show of being pious, religious, compassionate, loving, and virtuous, while voting for a gang that promises to use violence to control the actions of everyone you know, is the height of hypocrisy. To refrain from personally robbing one's neighbor, while pushing for someone else to do it, is both cowardly and hypocritical. Yet almost every Christian, and every member of every other religion, does such things on a regular basis by way of political advocacy 
As mentioned before, faith in government is a purely religious belief. As such, a vast majority of those who wear the label atheist are not actually atheists because they believe in the God called government. They do not recognize it as a religious belief, of course, but their belief in that ethereal, superhuman savior of mankind authority is as deep and faith-based as any other religious belief. Ironically, atheists are often quick to point out the destruction that has been committed throughout history in the name of religion, but fail to notice the gruesome results of the god they bow to, government. The atheists were absolutely right to point out that when churches were the accepted authority, the organizations thought to have the right to forcibly control others. Many of them committed large-scale, heinous acts of terrorism, torture, and murder. But what most modern atheists fail to realize, despite the clear evidence staring them in the face, is that they are members of the most destructive church in history, the Church of Government, which has managed to wreak havoc, death, and destruction on a level far beyond what even the most vicious churches in the past did. For example, over the span of 200 years, around 1 or 2 million people were killed in the religious wars known as the Crusades. In comparison, in half of that amount of time in the 20th century, over 100 times as many people were killed in the progressive policies of collectivist governments. Advances in technology no doubt played a large role in the increase of deaths. But the point is, whether the mask of authority is worn by a church or a state, the superstition is horribly dangerous, and the results are horribly destructive. The fact that so many atheists eagerly condemn one form of superstition, while vehemently advocating it in another form, shows an amazing degree of selective blindness. Often those most critical of oppression via religion are some of the most devout, true believers in the God-called government. No Objective Standard Again, in the eyes of those who believe in government, there is a world of difference between acceptable individual behavior and acceptable government behavior. When an individual steals $100, it is seen as an immoral crime. When those in government steal trillions of dollars every year, it is seen as acceptable. If the average individual prints his own $100 bill and goes out and spends it, that is seen as fraud and counterfeiting, an immoral act akin to theft. When government gives legal permission for the Federal Reserve to do the same thing, but with trillions of fiat out of thin air dollars, that is seen as acceptable, even useful and necessary. While various governments have declared that the average man is not allowed to possess firearms, the mercenaries of government are allowed to have guns, bombs, fighter jets, tanks, missiles, even nuclear warheads. Ironically, such weapons, with the exception of nuclear weapons, are routinely put in the hands of the very same people who, before they became mercenaries for the state, were prohibited from possessing firearms. In other words, when those individuals use their own judgment, some politicians declare them to be too untrustworthy and too much of a danger to society to be trusted with a five-shot revolver. But when those same people are blindly following orders, obeying the chain of command, those same politicians declare that they can be trusted to have assault rifles, sniper rifles, grenades, mounted machine guns, tanks, fighter jets, bombers, heavy artillery, and countless other tools of large-scale destruction. In addition to the huge chasm between what the masses perceive to be acceptable individual behavior and acceptable government behavior, the public sense of when government has gone too far seems almost random. The standards by which average individuals are judged are simple and constant. If they steal, defraud, assault, or murder, that is bad. But the measure of right and wrong for government seems largely arbitrary. For example, it is now widely accepted that outlawing alcohol would be unjustified, but outlawing marijuana and using widespread constant violence to enforce that prohibition is legitimate. 
As an even more bizarre contradiction, most people would be rightfully offended if government attempted to coerce everyone into picking up litter in his own neighborhood. But most accept it as legitimate when government, via military draft, coerce people into going to another country to either kill people or die. Bizarrely, this most heinous example of forced labor, forcing people to go halfway around the world to murder complete strangers, was even committed by a government whose own rules, i.e. the 13th Amendment, prohibit involuntary servitude. It is clear that the limits of what government is allowed to do, as far as the general public is concerned, are not based on any principle whatsoever. One reason people throughout the world and throughout history have been so slow to resist tyranny is that, as long as the growth of tyranny is slow and steady, the tyrants are never seen as having crossed the line. This is because, without any underlying principles by which to gauge right and wrong, there can be no line to cross. The belief in authority is completely incompatible with any moral principles, precisely because the essence of the belief is that the idea that those in authority are not bound by the same rules of conduct as their subjects. Logically, how could the subjects ever be justified in dictating standards of behavior to their masters? If taxation, forced confiscation of wealth, increases from 62 to 63%, how could any status on principle declare that the line had been crossed, or that government had overstepped its bounds? There can be no principled objection to robbery unless it's an objection against any level of robbery, even if legal. If 1% confiscation of wealth by government is legitimate in principle, then so is 99%. Either the rulers own the people and have the right to take as much as they please, or the people own themselves and the rulers have no right to forcibly take anything from them. There can be no principle anywhere in between. How can there be? What possible rational basis could there be for holding the belief that 46% slavery is good, but 47% slavery is bad? How could there be any principal line anywhere in between 0 and 100%? When the violence of government becomes too widespread, too arbitrary, and too vicious, even devout statists slowly begin to question it. But there are no real principles guiding how they judge the righteousness of the actions of the ruling class. Once it is accepted that one group of people has the inherent right to commit acts of aggression against others, there is no objective standard for limiting such a right. If government can require people to have a license to drive to the corner store, why can it not require people to have a license to walk down the street? If it is legitimate for lawmakers to demand that private firearms be registered and regulated, why is it not also legitimate for them to demand that all forms of speech and expression be registered and regulated? If it is okay for politicians to create an enforcement government monopoly on delivering letters, as the U.S. Postal Service has, why is it not okay for them to create an enforced government monopoly on telephone services? The reason government is always a slippery slope, constantly pushing away from freedom and towards totalitarianism, is that once someone accepts the premise of a ruling class, there is no objective basis whatsoever for applying any limits to the powers of that ruling class. There can be no rational moral standard for saying that a certain person has the right to commit acts of aggression, theft, intimidation, assault, and coercion, but that he may commit such acts only to a certain degree or only if necessary. For slaves to concede that they are the rightful property of someone else, only then to claim there are limits on what their owners may do to them, is a logical contradiction. Likewise, for a subject to accept any master, including one called government, and then to imagine that he, the subject, will decide the extent of the master's powers, defies logic and reality, yet that is what all believers in representative government seek to do. In short, those who believe in authority have accepted, on the most fundamental level, that they are owned by someone else. 
The people claiming to have authority have accepted that idea. They then proceed to beg their masters for favors. In doing so, however, the people are continually reinforcing the idea that ultimately it is up to the masters what will be done with the subjects. The one constant message that echoes throughout the entire political process is this. Here are the things that we the people ask you, the rulers, to allow us to do. The implicit message underlying all political action is that the only power the people have is the power to whine and beg, and that, ultimately, it is always up to the masters what will happen. To push for any change in the law is to accept that the law is legitimate. In contrast, if an armed driver was accosted by a carjacker with a knife, the driver would feel no need in lobbying the aggressor to beg him to give his permission for the driver to keep his own car. If the driver had the means to forcibly repel the attacker, he would have every right to do so. To ask for something is to accept that the decision is the other person's to make. To ask those in government for a bit more freedom is to admit that it is up to them whether the people may be free or not. In other words, to ask for freedom is not to be free, but to accept one's subjugation to someone else. Consider what an oxymoron it is for a person to claim to have an unalienable right to do something, and then to ask the politicians for their legislative permission to do that thing. The belief in authority ultimately leads even those who imagine themselves to be ardent pro-freedom advocates to condone their own subjugation. No matter how loudly they demand that the politicians change some law, those who claim to love freedom while still suffering from the authority superstition merely reinforce the legitimacy of the ruling class's control over them by implicitly agreeing that the people need the ruling class's legislative permission in order to have the right to do anything. The Effect on Freedom Advocates Government itself does no harm, because it is a fictional entity. But the belief in government, the notion that some people actually have the moral right to rule over others, has caused immeasurable pain and suffering, injustice and oppression, enslavement and death. The fundamental problem does not reside in any set of buildings, or any group of politicians, or any gang of soldiers or enforcers. The fundamental problem is not an organization that can be voted out, or overthrown, or reformed. The fundamental problem is the belief itself. The delusion, superstition, and myth of authority which resides in the minds of several billion human beings, including those who have suffered the most because of that belief. Ironically, the belief in authority dramatically affects the perceptions and actions of even those who are actively fighting against a particular regime. The superstition drastically alters and limits the ways in which dissenters fight oppression and renders nearly all of their efforts impotent. Furthermore, on the rare occasion that a particular tyrant is toppled, one form of oppression is almost always replaced by another, often one that is even worse than the prior one. Instead of fighting against a non-existent beast, what freedom fighters need to do is to recognize that it is not real, that it does not exist, that it cannot exist, and then act accordingly. Of course, if only a few people overcome the superstition, they will likely be ridiculed, condemned, attacked, imprisoned, or murdered by those who are still believers in the myth. But when even a significant minority of people outgrow the superstition and change their behavior accordingly, the world will drastically change. When people actively want true freedom, they will achieve it without the need for any election or revolution. The trouble is, almost no one actually wants humanity to be free, and almost no one opposes oppression in principle. The effects of the myth of authority remain intact even in the minds of most people who consider themselves to be rebels, nonconformists, and free thinkers. During their teenage years, many people go through a period of apparent rebelliousness, which consists mostly of doing whatever those in authority tell them not to do. Engaging in smoking, sexual promiscuity, drug use, wearing different clothes or hairstyles, 
getting tattoos or body piercings, and so on. As such, their actions are still controlled, albeit in a backward way. The myth of authority, instead of obeying for the sake of obeying, they disobey for the sake of disobeying, but still show no signs of being able to think for themselves. They behave like angry children instead of complacent children, but still don't behave like adults, and in most cases, their natural desire to break the chains of authority does not last long. They outgrow their anti-authoritarian tendencies and gradually transform back into model citizens, i.e. obedient subjects. For example, the supposedly radical anti-authoritarian hippies of the 1960s more or less became the new government in the United States with the presidency of Bill Clinton. Even the peaceniks, whose mantra was live and let live, when given the opportunity to become the new authority, chose to forcibly meddle with the lives of others as much as or more than their predecessors did, including via military conquest. Likewise, those in Generation X, the MTV crowd, and so on, have always focused on their efforts on putting people who agree with them in power. Instead of working to actually achieve freedom, there is a fundamental difference between having complaints about a particular ruling class and recognizing and opposing the insanity of authority in principle. In short, in all the various societal manifestations of so-called rebelliousness and nonconformity, almost none have actually escaped the myth of authority. Instead, they have merely attempted to make a new authority, a new ruling class, a new government, a new centralized machine of coercion, through which they forcibly subjugate and control their neighbors. In short, nearly all so-called rebels are phonies, who pretend to be resisting the man, but who actually just want to be the man. And this should be expected. If one starts with the assumption that there should be and must be an authority, and that a government exerting control over a population is a legitimate situation, why would anyone not want to be the one in charge? Each person, by definition, wants the world to be the way he thinks it should be. And what better way could any person accomplish that than by becoming king? If someone wants to accept the notion that authoritarian power is valid, why would he not want it to be used to try to create the world as he wants it to be? This is why the only people who truly advocate freedom in principle are anarchists and voluntarists people who understand that forcibly dominating others is not legitimate, even when it is called law, and even when it is done in the name of the people, or the common good. There is a big difference between striving for a new, wiser, nobler master, and striving for a world of equals, where there are no masters and no slaves. Likewise, there is a big difference between a slave who believes in the principle of freedom and a slave whose ultimate goal is to become the new master. And this is true, even if that slave truly intends to be a kind and generous master. Even those who advocate a relatively limited, benign type of government are advocating against freedom. As long as the people believe in the myth of authority, every downfall of one tyrant will be followed by the creation and growth of a new tyrant. History is replete with examples, such as Fidel Castro and Che Guevara, who portrayed themselves as freedom fighters just long enough to be the new oppressors. They were no doubt quite genuine in their vehement opposition to the oppressions which they and their friends suffered from, but they were not opposed to authoritarian oppression in principle, as clearly demonstrated by their behavior once they obtained power themselves. This pattern has been repeated over and over again throughout history with the resentment of one tyrannical regime becoming the seed of the next tyrannical regime. Even Hitler's rise to power was due in large part to the anger at the perceived injustices and oppressions inflicted upon Germany via the Treaty of Versailles. Of course, as long as the rebels suffer from the superstition of authority, their first priority, once they overthrow one government, will be to set up a new one. So, even acts of great bravery and heroism among those who still believe in government 
have accomplished little more than replacing one tyrant with another. Many have been able to recognize and oppose specific acts of tyranny by specific regimes, but very few have recognized that the underlying problem is not who sits on the throne. The problem is that there is a throne to sit on. The same failure to recognize the real problem occurs in a more mundane, relatively peaceful reform as well. In the U.S., for example, a large portion of the population is perfectly able to see the injustices resulting from the war on drugs, global warmongering, and other violations of civil rights committed by the Republican tyrants. However, not recognizing the belief in authority as the real problem, the solution proposed by those who recognize such injustices is to give the reins of government to Democrat tyrants instead. Meanwhile, another large portion of the population is perfectly able to see the injustices resulting from heavy taxation, government micromanaging of industry, wealth redistribution schemes, citizen disarmament, gun control, etc. But not recognizing the belief in authority as the real problem, the solution posed by those who recognize such injustices is to give the reins of government back to the Republican tyrants. And so, decade after decade, the machine of oppression changes hands while individual freedom in all aspects of life continue to dwindle. And still, all that most Americans can even contemplate as a solution is yet another election or another political party or another lobbying effort in the hope of begging the ruling class to be more wise or benevolent. Some people seeing the disaster caused by the two-party system, blame extremism for the negative effects of government. They surmise that if people would only support a form of coercive control somewhere in between the far left and the far right, things would improve. Such people claim to be independent, open-minded, and moderate but in reality are merely general advocates of oppression instead of being advocates of a particular flavor of oppression. The left and right are merely two masks which one ruling class wears, and making a new mask, which is a compromise between the other two, will have no effect whatsoever upon the nature of the beast or the destruction that it causes. Taking a position halfway between left-wing tyranny and right-wing tyranny does not result in freedom. It results in bipartisan tyranny. Among those who vote Democrat or Republican, or any other party, no one recognizes the underlying problem. As a result, no one ever gets any closer to a solution. They remain slaves because their thoughts and discussions are limited to the pointless questions of who should be their master. They never consider, and dare not consider, the possibility that they should have no master at all. As a result, they focus entirely on political action of one kind or another, which is all founded on the belief in authority, which is the problem itself. So the efforts of status are, and always will be, doomed to fail. This is even true in the less mainstream, supposedly more pro-freedom political movements, including constitutionalists, the Libertarian Party, and others. As long as they think and act within the confines of the government game, their efforts are not only completely incapable of solving the problem, but actually aggravate the problem by inadvertently legitimizing the system of domination and subjugation which wears the label of government. The Rules of the Game even most people who claim to love liberty and believe in unalienable rights allow the superstition of authority to drastically limit their effectiveness. Most of what such people do, in one way or another, consists of asking tyrants to change their laws. Whether activists campaign for or against a particular candidate, or lobby for or against a particular piece of legislation, they are merely reinforcing the assumption that obedience to authority is a moral imperative. When activists try to convince politicians to decrease taxes or repeal some law, those activists are implicitly admitting that they need permission from their masters in order to be free. And the man who runs for office, 
promising to fight for the people, is also implying that it is up to those in government to decide what the peasants will be allowed to do. As Daniel Webster put it, There are men of all ages who mean to govern well, but they mean to govern. They promise to be good masters, but they mean to be masters. Activists spend huge amounts of time, money, and effort begging their masters to change their commands. Many even go out of their way to stress the fact that they are working within the system and that they are not advocating anything illegal. This shows that, regardless of their displeasure with those in power, they still believe in the myth of authority and will cooperate with legal injustice unless and until they can convince the masters to change the rules, to legalize justice. While the intended message of the dissenters may be that they disapprove of what the masters are doing, the actual message that all political action sends to those in power is, we wish you would change your commands, but we will continue to obey whether you do or not. The truth is, one who seeks to achieve freedom by petitioning those in power to give it to him has already failed, regardless of the response. To beg for the blessing of authority is to accept that the choice is the master's alone to make, which means that the person is already, by definition, a slave. One who begs for lower taxes is implicitly agreeing that it is up to the politicians how much a man may keep of what he has earned. One who begs the politicians not to disarm him via gun control is, by doing so, conceding that it is up to the master whether to let the man be armed or not. In fact, those who lobby for politicians to respect any of the people's unalienable rights do not believe in unalienable rights at all. Rights which require government approval are not unalienable and are not even rights. They are privileges granted or withheld at the whim of the masters. And those who hold positions of power know that they have nothing to fear from people who do nothing but pathetically beg for freedom and justice. However loudly the dissenters talk about demanding their rights, the message they actually send is this. We agree, master, that it is up to you what we may and may not do. That underlying message can be seen in all sorts of activities mistakenly imagined to be forms of resistance. For example, people often engage in protests in front of government buildings, carrying signs, chanting slogans, sometimes even engaging in violence, to express their displeasure with what the masters are doing. However, even such protests, for the most part, do little more than reinforce authoritarianism. Marches, sit-ins, protests, and so on, are designed to send a message to the masters. The goal being to convince the masters to change their evil ways. But that message still implies that it is up to the masters what the people may do, which becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. When the people feel beholden to an authority, they are beholden to an authority. Those in government derive all their power from the fact that their subjects imagine them to have the power. Legitimizing Oppression The harder people try to work within any political system to achieve freedom, the more they will reinforce, in their own minds and in the minds of anyone watching, that the system is legitimate. Petitioning politicians to change their laws implies that those laws matter and should be obeyed. Nothing better shows the power of the belief in authority than the spectacle of a hundred million people begging a few hundred politicians for lower taxes. If the people truly understood that the fruits of a man's labor are his own, they would never engage in such lunacy. They would simply stop surrendering their property to the political parasites. Their trained-in desire to have the approval of authority creates in them a mindset not unlike the mindset of a slave. They literally feel bad about keeping their own money and making their own choices without first getting the master's permission to do so. Even when freedom is theirs for the taking, statists continue to grovel at the feet of megalomaniacs begging for freedom, 
thus ensuring that they will never be free. The truth is, one cannot believe in authority and be free, because accepting the myth of government is accepting one's own obligation to obey a master, which means accepting one's own enslavement. Sadly, many people believe that begging the master via political action is all they can do, so they forever engage in rituals which only legitimize the slave-master relationship instead of simply disobeying the tyrants. The idea of disobeying authority, breaking the law, and being criminals is more disturbing to them than the idea of being a slave. Those who want a significantly lower level of authoritarian control and coercion are sometimes accused of being anti-government, an allegation most vehemently deny, saying that they are not against government per se, but only want a better government. But by their own words, they are admitting that they do not believe in true freedom, but still believe in the divine right of politicians and the idea that a ruling class can only be a good and legitimate thing. Only someone who still feels an abiding obligation to obey the commands of politicians would want to avoid being labeled anti-government. Since government always consists of aggression and domination, one cannot be truly pro-freedom without being anti-government. The fact that so many activists reject the label anti-government shows how deeply ingrained the superstition of authority remains. Even in the minds of those who imagine themselves to be ardent advocates of individual liberty. One particularly fascinating phenomenon is worth mentioning here. Outraged by authoritarian injustice, but still unwilling to give up the authority superstition in themselves, many in the growing freedom, militia, patriot movement continue to seek or claim to have found some legal remedy which will persuade tyrants to leave them in peace. Over the years, one theory after another has surfaced alleging the existence of some secret government form, or some legal trick, or some official procedure which can free an individual from the control of government. Sadly, this demonstrates only that such people are still doing nothing more than looking for a way to get permission to be free. The road to true freedom has never been, and will never be, a new political ritual, a new legal document or argument, or any other form of political action. The only road to true freedom is for the individual to let go of his own attachment to the superstition of authority. The Libertarian Contradiction Perhaps the best illustration of how the belief in authority warps thinking and gets in the way of achieving freedom is the fact that there is a libertarian political party. The heart and soul of libertarianism is the non-aggression principle, the idea that initiating force or fraud against another is always wrong, and that force is justified only if used in defense against aggression. The principle is perfectly sound, but trying to make it reality via any political process is completely self-contradictory, because government and non-aggression are utterly incompatible. If the organization called government stopped using any threats or violence except to defend against aggressors, it would cease to be government. It would have no right to rule, no right to tax, no right to legislate, no monopoly on protection, and no right to do anything which any other human being does not have the right to do. One excuse for libertarian political activism is the claim that society can transform from its current authoritarian arrangement into a truly free society, only if it does so slowly and gradually. However, that has never happened, and never will happen. For a very simple reason, either there is a such thing as authority, or there is not. Either there is a legitimate ruling class with the right to rule everyone, or each individual owns himself and is beholden only to his own conscience. The two are mutually exclusive paradigms. It is impossible for there to be an in-between. Because whenever there is a conflict between what authority commands and what one's individual judgment dictates, it is impossible to obey both. One must outrank the other. If authority outranks conscience, 
then the common folk are all the rightful property of the ruling class, in which case freedom cannot and should not exist. If, on the other hand, conscience outranks authority, then each person owns himself, and each must always follow his own judgment of right and wrong, no matter what any self-proclaimed authority or law may command. There cannot be a gradual shift between the two, nor can there be a compromise. Trying to convert libertarianism into a political movement requires a mangled, perverted hybrid of the two options, the idea that a system of domination, government, can be used to achieve individual freedom. Whenever a libertarian lobbies for legislation or runs for office, he is, by his own actions, conceding that authority and man-made law is legitimate. But if one actually believed in the non-aggression principle, he would understand that the commands of politicians' laws cannot trump that principle, and any law that is contrary to the principle is illegitimate. This goes for the idea of unalienable rights as well. If an individual has an inherent right to do something, then, by definition, he does not need any permission from tyrants to do it. He doesn't need to lobby for change in legislation, and does not need to try to elect some master who will choose to respect his rights. Anyone who actually believes in the principle of non-aggression, the underlying premise of libertarianism, must be an anarchist, as it is logically impossible to oppose the initiation of violence while supporting any form of government, which is nothing but violence, and libertarians cannot be constitutionalists, as the Constitution, quite plainly, in Article 1, Section 8, claims to bestow upon some people the right to initiate violence, via taxation and regulation, among other things. The principle of libertarianism logically rules out all government, even a constitutional republic. Anyone who tries to describe government, which commits no acts of aggression, will describe, at best, a private security company. Nonetheless, so many people have been so thoroughly trained into the authoritarian mindset that even when they can see the obvious moral superiority of living by the non-aggression principle, the basis of libertarianism, they still refuse to give up the absurd notion that the right to rule, authority, can be used as a tool for freedom and justice. There is a fundamental difference between arguing about what the master should do, which is what all politics consists of, and declaring that the master has no right to rule at all. To be a libertarian candidate is to try to do both of these conflicting things. It obviously legitimizes the office the candidate seeks to hold even while the candidate is claiming to believe in the principles of non-aggression and self-ownership, which completely rule out the responsibility of any legitimate public office. In short, if the goal is individual freedom, political action is not only worthless, it is hugely counterproductive, because the main thing it accomplishes is to legitimize the ruling class's power. The only way to achieve freedom is to first achieve mental freedom, by realizing that no one has the right to rule another, which means that government is never legitimate. It is never moral. It is never even real. Those who have not yet realized that and continue to try to petition the system to make them free are playing right into the hands of the tyrants. Even petitioning for lower levels of taxation or government spending, or asking for things to be legalized or deregulated, or begging for other reductions in government control over the people, still does nothing to address the real problem, and in fact, adds to the real problem by unwittingly repeating and reinforcing the idea that if people want freedom, they need to have freedom legalized. Political action, by its very nature, always empowers the ruling class and disempowers the people. If enough people recognize and let go of the authority myth, there is no need for any election, any political action, or any revolution. If the people did not imagine themselves to have an obligation to obey the politicians, the politicians would literally be ignored into irrelevance. In fact, the belief in democracy dramatically reduces the ability of the people to resist tyranny by limiting the ways in which they resist it.
For example, if 49% of the population wanted lower levels of taxation but maintained their belief in authority, they could accomplish exactly nothing via democracy. On the other hand, if even 10% of the population wanted no taxation at all and had escaped the myth of authority, including the democratic kind, they could achieve their goal easily by simply non-compliance. Using the U.S. as an example, if 20 million people, less than 10% of American taxpayers, openly refused to cooperate with the attempts of the IRS to extort them, the ruling class would be powerless to do anything about it. And the infamous Internal Revenue Service, along with the massive extortion racket it administers, would grind to a halt. It would be utterly impossible for 100,000 IRS employees to continually rob millions of Americans who felt no obligation to pay. In fact, it would be impossible for any agency to enforce any law which even a fraction of the public could disobey with no feeling of shame or guilt. Brute force alone cannot achieve compliance. Any large population of people that did not perceive obedience in and of itself to be a virtue, and felt no inherent duty to obey the commands of those claiming the right to rule, would be utterly impossible to oppress. Wars occur because people feel obligated to go into battle when authority tells them to. As the saying goes, what if they had a war and nobody came? As long as the people can be duped into perpetually begging for freedom to be legalized, they will be easy to subjugate and control. As long as a person's perceived duty to obey authority outranks his own individual judgment, his beliefs and values are, practically speaking, irrelevant. Unless and until a freedom advocate is willing to disobey the master, to break the law, his supposed love of freedom is a lie and will accomplish nothing. Same as the old boss. Many have argued that society without rulers is impossible, because the moment that government collapses or is overthrown, a new government will instantly spring up. In one sense, that is true. If the people continue to adhere to the myth of authority, after any upheaval of a particular regime, they will simply create a new set of masters to replace the old set. But the reason for this is neither the necessity of government nor the basic nature of man. What nearly all freedom fighters fail to realize, as they rail against tyranny and oppression, is that the underlying problem is never the particular people in power. The underlying problem resides in the minds of the people being oppressed, including the minds of most freedom fighters. As long as people accept the myth of authority, even open revolution will, in the long run, do nothing to reduce oppression. When one group of controllers and exploiters fails, the people will simply set up another. Though few of those who wave their flags on Independence Day realize it, the level of oppression under King George III, just after the American Revolution, was trivial compared to the current levels of taxation, regulation, and other authoritarian intrusion, coercion, and harassment which routinely occur in the U.S. today. It's easy for people to see specific injustices committed in the name of a particular regime, but far more difficult for those same people to recognize that the root cause of such injustices is the belief system of the general public. History books are full of examples of long, bloody reigns of tyrants, followed at last by bloody revolution, followed by the anointing of a new tyrant. The type of tyrant may change, a monarch replaced by a communist regime, a right-wing tyrant replaced by a left-wing tyrant, an oppression theocracy replaced by an oppressive populist regime, and so on. But as long as the belief in authority remains, so will oppression. Even the most heinous examples of man's inhumanity to man, committed in the name of authority, rarely persuade anyone to question the idea of authority per se. Instead, it leads them only to oppose a particular set of tyrants. As a discouraging example, the main opposition in Germany to the Nazis came from the communists, 
who themselves advocated a form of oppression just as vicious and destructive as Hitler's regime. Due to their authoritarian mindset, the Germans had no chance to achieve peace or justice, as their entire national debate was concerned only with which kind of all-powerful ruler should be in charge, without even a hint of the possibility that no one should have such power. The public discourse has been similar throughout most of the world, throughout most of time, focusing on who should rule, instead of questioning whether there should be rulers at all. A Mix of Wisdom and Insanity In the late 18th century, something very unusual occurred, something that seemed as if it might break a perpetual cycle of serial tyrants. That event was the signing of the Declaration of Independence. What made that event unusual was not that the people were rebelling against a tyrant, which had happened countless times before, but that the rebels expressed some basic philosophical principles, rejecting not just a particular regime, but rejecting oppression in principle. Almost. The American Revolution was the result of a hodgepodge of conflicting ideas some supporting individual sovereignty, some supporting a ruling class. The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution which followed some years later were a combination of profound insight and glaring contradictions. On the bright side, the discussion of the time was not just about who would be in charge, but focused heavily on the concept of individual rights and limiting the powers of government. At the same time, the Declaration of Independence erroneously asserted that government can have a legitimate role in society to protect the rights of individuals. However, this has never been true in practice and can never be true in theory. As explained above, an organization which did nothing more than defend individual rights would not be government in any sense of the term. The Declaration also spoke of unalienable rights and asserted that all men are created equal, as far as their rights are concerned. But the authors failed to realize that such concepts completely rule out any possibility of a legitimate ruling class, even a very limited one. The very principles they expressed were then immediately contradicted by their efforts to create a protector, government. One day they were declaring that all men are created equal, the Declaration of Independence. And the next day they were declaring that some men, calling themselves Congress, had the right to rob, tax, everyone else. U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1. Furthermore, the Declaration asserts when any government becomes destructive of individual rights, as every government always does the moment it comes into existence. The people have the duty to alter or abolish it. Yet the Constitution claims to give Congress the power to suppress insurrections. U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15. This implies that the people have the right to resist government oppression, but that the government has the right to violently crush them when they do. In short, works of the Founding Fathers consist of a combination of profound wisdom and utter lunacy. In some places, they describe quite well the concept of self-ownership. In others, they sought to create a ruling class. They didn't seem to notice that those two agendas are utterly incompatible with each other. The result of their effort was, in one sense, a gigantic failure— the regime they created grew far beyond what both the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists said they wanted. The Declaration and the Constitution utterly failed to keep government power limited. The promise of a government that would be a servant of the people, protecting their rights but otherwise leaving them in peace, grew into the largest, most powerful authoritarian empire the world has ever known, including the largest and most intrusive extortion racket ever known the largest and most powerful war machine in history, and the most intrusive and invasive bureaucracy in history. In truth, the idea was doomed from the beginning. Perhaps the most valuable thing the great American experiment accomplished 
was to demonstrate that limited government is impossible. There cannot be a master who answers to his slaves. There cannot be a lord who serves his subjects. There cannot be a ruler who is both above the people and subordinate to them. Unfortunately, there are still many who refuse to learn this lesson, insisting instead that the Constitution did not fail, the people failed, by not doing it right, by not being vigilant enough, or by some other neglect or corruption. Oddly, this is the same excuse given by communists for why their flawed philosophy, when put into practice in the real world, always turns into violent oppression. The truth is that any form of authoritarian control, any type of government, whether constitutional, democratic, socialist, fascist, or anything else, will result in a set of masters forcibly oppressing a group of slaves. That is what authority is, all it ever has been, and all it ever could be, no matter how many layers of euphemisms and pleasant rhetoric are used in an attempt to hide it.